This podcast was brought to you by withaim.co. In this gripping episode, the tension rises as Lee Gulliver's daring rescue takes an unexpected turn. As she pulls a mysterious woman from the cold clutches of the sea, their connection deepens, unraveling layers of secrets and struggles. If you missed the previous episodes, hit pause now and catch up, because the shadows of the unknown are about to cast their spell once again. In sociological terms, they call it the fundamental attribution error. Basically, it means that when people see someone in a bad situation, they tend to believe that individual brought it on themselves. What did I think of the homeless before I became one of them? Not much is the short answer. This is the story of Lee Crawford and how a series of bad choices flipped her life upside down. But what if there's an escape? One night, sleeping in her car with an ocean view, a desperate cry shattered the silence. I'm sorry. And then I hear a splash. What the hell is this woman doing? It's just April. The Pacific will be frigid. If I hadn't heard her cries, this stranger would have drowned, as she clearly intended. You should have left me. I don't want to be here. You're listening to Vanishing Shadows. This is Episode 3, Ties That Bind in the Shadows. My feet have just touched the rocky bottom when she comes to. I feel her inert body surge with life, and suddenly she is fighting me. Let me go, she screams, twisting from my grasp, flailing out at me. What are you doing? Saving your life, I yell back. No, she shrieks. Get the fuck away from me. I let her go, but we're at the shore by then. We both stagger out of the water and collapse onto the rocks. I look over at the woman, gasping for breath beside me. Her skin is so pale, her lips tinged blue. She's probably hypothermic or very close to it. Stay here, I say, firmly but gently. I scramble across the slippery rocks to the path. My car is open, vulnerable, but the neighborhood is still asleep. Retrieving the sleeping bag and the whiskey, I return to the beach. She's huddled there, arms clutching herself, forehead lowered to her knees. I drape the sleeping bag around her shoulders and open the bottle of whiskey. I take a sip before I offer it to her. She looks at it for a moment before she takes it and drinks, wordlessly. We pass it back and forth a few times, until I notice her shivering is less violent. The sun is coming up, the day slowly warming but I'm still frigid. The drowning woman notices and invites me under the blanket. It feels strangely intimate, but I'm too cold to refuse. We huddle together in silence for a while, the warmth of our bodies, the whiskey, and the sleeping bag raising our core temperatures. In swimming lessons, they taught us to remove wet clothing to battle hypothermia, but that would be too weird. And we weren't in the cold water long enough to warrant it. I take a sip of whiskey and watch a boat pass by. An early morning fisherman. Would he have saved this woman if I hadn't intervened? But he barely seems to notice us, motoring by with his face turned toward the horizon. If I hadn't heard her cries, this stranger would have drowned, as she clearly intended. You should have left me, she says then, her voice hoarse from the shrieking and the alcohol. I don't want to be here. 
It was instinct, I reply. I took a lot of swimming lessons. She smirks and gives me a side-eyed look. Well, you fucked up. Why, I ask. Why were you trying to drown yourself? I hate my life. So do I. You don't understand. No, you don't understand, I want to say. There's no way that this woman, in her designer jogging suit and running shoes that probably cost as much as my car, has a life worse than mine. But I'm not about to show my hand, and this is not a contest. My marriage is toxic and sick. My husband is abusive. Get a divorce, I say. You don't have to kill yourself. She laughs darkly. You don't get it. She's right. I don't. My relationship history is dismal but anticlimactic. Work has always usurped relationships. In my 20s, I lived with a guy, Andre, for three years. But the romance petered out, due to neglect and indifference. When we split, it was cordial. He left me the couch. Since then, I've had lovers, but few real boyfriends. There was never time. They were never a priority. It was easier to have no-strings hookups while I focused on my career. My husband is a criminal defense lawyer. He's rich. And he's powerful. She takes a swig from the bottle. And he's a sadist. It might be hyperbole. People call their partners horrible names all the time. But her words send a chill through me. Something tells me that her description is literal. That this woman's husband is turned on by abuse and humiliation. Hers. She gets up suddenly. I have to go. I follow her up the trail that spits us out right next to my car. Can I pretend this isn't mine? That I, too, occupy one of the magnificent homes surrounding us. But when she looks at it and then over at me, I realize it's clear. This is my Toyota. This is my home. Do you need a ride? I ask lamely. Her eyes roam over the plastic-covered window, the cold toast on the dashboard, my cheap phone in the console. The back seat is filled with clothes, some neatly folded, some tossed haphazardly. And then I see the knife, abandoned on the front seat. It had been on my lap when I scrambled from the vehicle. Has she spotted it? I just live up the street, she says, looking away, ashamed for me. 8,000 square feet, right on the water. But it's a prison. Better than living like this, I mutter, eyes on my home on wheels. No, she says. It's not. Without another word, she walks away. We'll be back to Daily Bedtime Tales right after this message. What if you could share your story with the world? What if you could inspire others with your passion, your message, or your vision? What if you had a team to help you craft the perfect story for your business or brand? Well, you can. And we at With AIM are here to make it happen. With AIM is more than just a podcast production company. We are your storytellers 
your voice, and your partner in creating a podcast that will captivate your audience, showcase your brand's personality, and build a lasting relationship with your customers. So don't let your story go untold. Start your podcast today. Visit with aim.co slash podcast to learn more. That's with aim.co forward slash podcast. With AIM, be the voice of your brand. I need more sleep, but I am soaking wet with seaweed in my hair and green slime on my clothing and skin. The brackish smell of Puget Sound is strong on me, and I need to shower and change. Normally, I can go a couple days without a proper wash, but I can't go to the diner like this. Working quickly in the low light, I peel off my wet jeans and struggle into a pair of black tights. They stick to my skin, forcing me to wriggle and jump into them. Yesterday's t-shirt is atop the pile in the back seat. It smells like grease, and there's a mustard stain, or is it egg yolk, down the front. But at least it's dry. Though my head feels thick and cloudy, I need to focus. Strategy is key to survival for the homeless. There must be a community pool in this area where I can scam a hot shower. But I have no idea where it is. If I still had my smartphone, I could have Googled it. But the dumb phone won't help me. I decide to drive south, back to the lower income, more familiar neighborhoods. Before I leave, I stash some of my belongings in the thick brush so I don't have to cart them with me. I will come back here tonight. I've been sleeping peacefully in this spot, except when there's a woman trying to drown herself. She's stuck in my head as I drive past the sleeping mansions, out of the forested enclave, and merge onto the highway. The plastic on the window thwops relentlessly, and I feel the tension build between my eyebrows. Her husband must be a monster for her to want to die, to give up her life of privilege and luxury. And why drowning? Aren't there more efficient, painless ways to do yourself in? But the poetic nature of an abused woman walking into the icy ocean cannot be denied. If only I hadn't stopped her. There was something about her, though. Even after I dragged her from the water, when she sat shivering and dirty on the slippery rocks, she had an effortless elegance, a sense of refinement. As I sat beside her, the two of us soaked through, passing that bottle back and forth. I felt captivated by her. I'm desperate for a connection, I think. As my life spiraled down the drain, my friends scurried away like rats. And my best friend, my sister, hates me. That's what I miss. That closeness, that bond. That I took for granted until it was gone. I destroyed it. It's all my fault. But that doesn't mean I don't yearn for it. As I near the city, traffic starts to thicken. I drive past the heart of Seattle, heading toward familiar territory. I try not to use the same shower too often. Their goodwill will only stretch so far. But I'm driving on autopilot, my thoughts muddled by exhaustion. Suddenly, I find myself in the same parking lot. The lure of the hot water and soap is too strong, and I go inside. Hi, I mumble, all too aware of my slimy appearance. I lost my pass. It's a man this time, with heavy brows and a shock of gray hair. His face is hard etched with his history. I can already tell. There is little room in his heart for compassion. 
This pool is for paying customers, he says, his words gruff. I'll pay, I say, reaching into my pocket for my tip money. No problem. No, he barks, waving me away with a gnarled hand. You're not here to swim. Get out. I don't have the energy to pretend. Please, I say, feeling tears welling in my eyes. I'll just shower and go. He looks me over with a disgust that borders on loathing. This isn't a shelter. We don't allow vagrants here. Two women enter then, chatting brightly. But they stop as they near me. Their clean hair is scraped into ponytails. Their morning skin dewy with moisturizer. Not so long ago, women like these would have come into my restaurant. They would have admired the aplomb with which I ran it. Marveling at my rapport with staff and customers. The obvious joy I took in it. I'd have come by their table to check on their satisfaction and offered a digestif on the house. They might even have envied me. But now I see the wary look in their eyes and the pity. It is worse than the man's disdain. I hurry out of the building. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Eventually, I find a YMCA with the gym and pay to use the shower. Afterward, I go to the laundromat, where I doze in a chair as my clothes and sleeping bag wash and dry, and then I go to work. I force a cheerful demeanor, but it doesn't increase my tips. By the end of the shift, I've stopped trying. With the night's meager earnings in my pocket, I drive back up north, to that upscale community, to the secluded alcove. In the dark, I struggle to find the bags I stashed in the bushes, but they are still there, untouched. I put them in the car, recline my seat, and sleep, hard and deep, until I hear it. A sharp tapping on the glass beside my head wrenches me into consciousness. I lurch forward, hands groping for the knife in my lap. I grasp it, just as I make out the face framed in the window, backlit by the rising sun. It's not a cop or a thief or a rapist. It's her, the drowning woman. Tentatively, I open the car door and step out. The morning sky glows a promising shade of peach, and there's already a whisper of warmth in the crisp air. The woman is in another expensive jogging outfit, dark hair pulled back from a flawless, makeup-free face. But she looks different now, softer, smiling. I realize that I never thanked you, she says, for saving me. It's fine. I thought I wanted to die, but I don't. I'm grateful that you found me when you did. I shrug because there's really nothing to say. The woman removes a small pack from her back and unzips it. 
I brought you something to say thanks. She presses a small object into my hand. It's smooth and white, a hole through its center. It's a netsuke, she explains. Traditionally, Japanese men use them as toggles on their kimonos. It's carved from bone. I look at the figurine, an intricate figure of a coiled snake. My husband collects them, the woman says. This one's from the early 19th century. I'd have preferred a package of bagels or a latte. Thanks. It's quite valuable. I'm not sure what it's worth, but it's signed. Turning it over, I see the artist's name in Japanese characters. Sell it if you want, or keep it. Put it somewhere in your new place, once you're back on your feet. What is it worth, I wonder? It would be rude to ask. But if I can get even a hundred bucks for it, I'm selling it. I appreciate the sentiment, but money is more important than a trinket right now. And, she says, digging deeper into the pack, removing a brown paper sack. Breakfast. That's more like it. My stomach churns with the promise of food. Free food. Shall we eat on the beach? Watch the sunrise? Before I can answer, she's moving toward the path. She calls over her shoulder. Your car is safe. I jog here every morning. No one ever comes by. I trail her down to the ocean. We settle on a driftwood log, bleached soft and gray, and the woman unpacks the paper sack. I'm Hazel, she says as she passes me a roll covered in seeds. I baked these a couple of days ago. I couldn't make anything fresh without Benjamin noticing. Benjamin, the husband, the sadist. So what's your story? She asks, setting a shiny red apple on my lap. Why do you live in your car? Do I tell her that I was a successful restaurateur? That I'd finally manifested my dream when COVID hit? That I'd done everything in my power, legitimate and then illegal and finally immoral, to keep my business going? But I can't. Pandemic, I mutter, biting into the bun. It's light and moist and filled with peanut butter and honey. It's the taste of my childhood and my throat clogs with longing for a simpler time. It hit a lot of people hard, she says, eyes on the horizon. But Benjamin made even more money. What's your story? I ask. What do you do? She turns to face me then. I do what I'm told. By Benjamin? Her eyes return to the sea. Yep. Surely you have your own life. Her response is a question. What's your name? For some reason, I hesitate. Consider giving her a fake. But finally, I say, I'm Lee. Well, Lee, my relationship doesn't allow me to have my own life. I don't get it. She looks at the Apple Watch on her wrist. Shit. She scrambles to her feet. I have to be home by 6.30. Why? I'll be punished. That doesn't sound like a marriage, Hazel. It sounds like a master and a slave. That's exactly what it is. She's already scrambling over the rocks toward the path, before I can ask her if she means it.
The next day is payday. It's also my day off, but I go into the diner early to collect my money. I'd hoped that Hazel would come by again with a pilfered breakfast and a few minutes of companionship, but she didn't. Maybe Benjamin only lets her jog on certain mornings? Or maybe one free meal and a Japanese figurine are thanks enough for saving her life. Randy slides me an envelope, and I feel the lightness of it. I'm an illegal worker, so he can pay me what he wants. We'd agreed on a wage, though, so this should be more than enough to repair my window. I have an appointment at a glass place a few miles from Uncle Jack's diner. The man on the phone promised same-day service for a price. I would give all the money I've saved to fix my car. The nights are too cold to sleep outside, and it's not safe. I'm too frightened to go to a rooming house where I'd share a wall with an ex-con, a drug dealer, or worse. My pride still won't allow me to go to a shelter. I'm the first customer at the auto body shop. Four mechanics in coveralls loiter in the office, drinking coffee and shooting the shit. I called, I say as I enter. I need my window fixed, today. I hold out my keys, and an older man with a thin gray ponytail steps forward, takes them. I can do it, but it'll cost you. I know. His watery eyes roam over me, and his eyebrow arches skeptically. You've got the money. My poverty is apparent in my ghostly complexion, my uncombed hair, my rumpled clothing. Over time, my air of competence, confidence, and capability has dissolved. Now I look weak, desperate, and broke. I've got it, I snap. He sets his coffee cup down. Right. You can pick it up at the end of the day. I'll wait. Okay. He nods toward a coffee pot, a stack of paper cups, a jar of powdered creamer. Coffee's free for customers. The men reluctantly disperse, my presence an irritant. I pour a cup of coffee, shake in the creamer, and stir it with a wooden stick. It tastes awful, but it doles the hunger pangs. On my days off, I get no free food, so I must strategize the cheapest way to eat. At least the waiting area is safe and warm, and no one will chase me away. I'm a customer. I'm allowed to spend the day here. It comes on slowly, after my third cup of coffee. A tickle in the back of my throat that I attribute to the noxious liquid. But when it's followed by a chill and an ache deep in my bones, I realize I'm sick. It's a cold, or more likely a flu. It's not surprising I'd catch a virus. I'm malnourished and exhausted. And when I rescued Hazel, I'd gotten a nasty chill. But I can't be ill. Survival is hard enough when I'm healthy. I need chicken soup and tea and cold medicine. I need 12 hours of uninterrupted sleep in a comfortable position. But I don't know where to find supplies in this area. And I must stay upright and semi-alert. This is a place of business. I huddle into myself, wrapping my sweater tight around my ribs. Just for a moment, I close my eyes and let self-pity wash over me. The universe is punishing me for what I've done. I deserve this misery. At some point, a mechanic enters, trailed by a customer. 
They moved to the counter to discuss quotes for a cracked windshield. I keep my eyes down, focused on my tepid cup of coffee. The two men don't seem to notice me, though I'm subtly shivering now. I hug myself tighter, rubbing the backs of my arms. Is the air conditioning on? Why am I so cold? The mechanic moves back to the workshop, and the customer heads for the door. I allow myself a quick glimpse of him as he passes. He's average height but noticeably fit, wearing faded jeans and a thin t-shirt that shows off a muscular body. His ropey forearms are decorated with tattoos, and I spot a skull that looks hand-drawn. The man is my age, or perhaps a little younger. Once, I might have smiled, even flirted with a guy like this. But when he glances my way, I drop my eyes, shift uncomfortably. I must look as bad as I feel, if not worse. When he's gone and I'm alone, I pull my knees up to my chest, rest my head on them. My body throbs, and there's an insistent pressure building in my sinuses. I haven't eaten since last night, but I don't have much of an appetite. Still, some food might make me feel less nauseous, less dizzy. My head pops up as the front door opens. It's him, the customer who just left. He's back and he's looking right at me, his brows knitted together, his mouth set in a grim line. He holds out his hand to me. In it is an orange. Our eyes meet and his are not filled with pity or condescension, just human decency. I can't help but notice the color. Hazel, flecked with green and gold. I accept his offering. It's just an orange, but my throat clogs with emotion. Thanks. He gives a slight nod and then he leaves. It's not a particularly good orange, a bit stringy. But I eat ravenously, juice running down my hands, stinging the scratches on my wrist. I can almost feel the vitamin C coursing through my body, and I pray for a miraculous recovery. When I'm finished, I find a restroom that says employees only, and slip inside. My haunted reflection stares back from the chipped mirror. I run the water until it's warm, then wash my sticky hands, the area around my mouth. My teeth are full of orange pith, but my toothbrush is in my car. I pat at my hair, Try to flatten it, but there's no use. Giving up, I slip back to the waiting area. By the time the ponytail mechanic returns, I am weaker, sicker, colder. My throat feels like it's closing, and my sinuses are throbbing. Your window's fixed, he says, dropping my keys on the countertop. Great. As I walk toward him, the floor tilts under my feet. Luckily, I reach the counter before I stumble. You okay? But he doesn't care about me. A woman collapsing in his lobby will be bad for business. Yeah, fine. He punches the buttons on an outdated cash register and gives me my total. I reach into the pocket of my cardigan for my pay packet and withdraw the cash. I count it out with shaky hands. The man recounts it quickly then scoops it into the till. I put the few remaining bills back in my pocket, thank him, and leave. 
My car is secure now. I can park anywhere and be safe. In this largely industrial area, I'll be able to find a side street where I can rest, undisturbed. I should find some soup and then go to sleep. I have to work tomorrow. I can't afford to miss a shift. Turning the key, I pull out of the parking lot but pause as I get to the street. I think about that hand punching through the window, clutching my wrist, stealing my purse. I look at the scratches on my arm, still puffy and red. And then I think about Hazel. I head toward the northbound interstate. The aviary's ashes are still warm when Jesse, the mysterious hero from the garage, walks into Lee's life. Sparks fly as they banter at the diner. He's the jolt Lee needs, but will she risk it all for a post-shift adventure? Buckle up for the unexpected twist in the next episode.